1: Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening.
2: I, for one, am looking forward to what this pair of remarkable women will bring forth today in dialogue with us.
3: So, welcome Lynn. Well, thank you. And
2: Sharon.
4: Thank you so thank much. You. At last, uh, Rosemary uh, and Jerry, I guess this last time I saw you as well, um, at the theater, at the public. And it was a uh, girl from the North Country, which is a musical set in the depression, to Bob Dylan's music, so I was watching Rosemary and all these tunes were going through my mind you know and and it was a sad, sad story too um, at that time. so I thought, uh, given where we are, and thank you all so much for coming, and especially thank you, Lynn. It was really uh, so gracious and so lovely to meet you finally and um we might meditate for a few minutes as we gather our energy and more and completely arrive. So uh, if you want to just sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or
2: not, however you feel most at ease. i like to just
4: start, however briefly, in that way so that there's really just much more of a, a sense of arriving. Um, so here we are. How cool is that? So I just had a funny moment um, before coming in here, uh, going to the bathroom, standing on the threshold, and I realized I had a significant life experience in that very spot one year. It was uh, 2008, and I am known, you know, to the world in general as a meditation teacher. I've been teaching since I was 21, um, which was a good long time ago. And uh, so inner work, inner transformation, finding peace, uh, finding resilience, and, and different sources of inner strength is really like my thing. You know, these days we'd say that's my brand, (laughs) and uh, much less known to the world is, you know, as my commitment to social change and to um, really caring about others and system change and things like that. So, 2008, I was uh, actually very involved in in Barack Obama's campaign, and there were a few people I was following online, like for guidance, you know, different sites who were, you know, talking, they were like old hats at uh, political work, and they were teaching about canvassing and how to do all this stuff. And um, and then uh, maybe, to, to, I don't even think, did Twitter exist? I think maybe it in Facebook uh, in 2008. I saw that one of them actually sent out a message to the world, which was, I want to go to Sharon Salzberg's event. Does anybody have an extra ticket and I thought she knows my name (laughs) you know she was really like my political guru you know and uh, a little later on I came here different day came here to teach and I was just going into the bathroom and she was just coming out and so it was right on that spot on the threshold she, she introduced herself and and I said oh my god you know it's like you and and then there were all these people waiting in here for me and and I said, well, I have to go. And then I said, you represent my secret life. And she said, you represent mine. Aww. And it was quite a moment. I realized, like, she is a, you know, political activist. Actually, didn't you talk about her in her work and her, her spiritual journey and all the things she was doing. And I was not in the habit of, of really, uh, at that point, it was just the beginning of, of my being more upfront, so... Uh, Lily, who's my assistant, is here, and every time I write, I have like a huge passion for things like voting, for example. And every time I write something, Lily will say, Boy, you just lost a whole bunch of followers. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I thought, okay, you know, whatever. Um But it's it's an amazing moment in time, I think. Um I think back to a much earlier book of mine. It was the second book I wrote, which was called A Heart as Wide as the World. And it was a book that originally had a different title. can you remember what it was, but I didn't like it much. And I was teaching with somebody, and the person I was teaching with was giving a talk, and she used the phrase, A Heart as Wide as the World. And I thought, that's it. That's That's the title I want. So I called my long-suffering publisher, and I said, I want I wanted to change the title to A Heart as Wide as the World, and they were not happy. Uh, They'd already designed a cover for the other one and the whole thing, so, um, but they finally said, okay, so it was a mad dash to get a cover, and this was a long time ago, so they were sending me in the mail these depictions of different covers, so of course, A Heart as Wide as the World makes you think of, like, openness and expansiveness and space and so at one point, they sent me this copy of a, a Van Gogh painting. I don't remember the name of the painting, but it was like this big yellow sky, and down at the bottom, there were a few crumbled huts, and it looked like a scene of total devastation. And I said uh, to someone, it "Looks like it should be the cover for the Grapes of Wrath or something like that." And, but I asked a friend. I said, "What do you think?" And she looked at it and she said, "This looks like a world that could use some love." And, of course, that didn't become the cover, but that phrase has stayed with me for decades. And I think about it all the time now. This looks like a world that could use some love. But for so many people, love means something else, you know, something sentimental or giving in or um, not not really uh, seeking change or not, not losing, you know, it's sort of losing um, some sense of, of strength for sentimentality or something saccharine and which i consider i consider a real degradation of the understanding of love in our time um so that's part of what brings me here tonight you know is a tremendous commitment to exploring love as an agent for social change and the other thing is really a, a much bigger exploration of, of social change and and means of, of social change, um, writing a book right now, um, basically on mindfulness and loving kindness and social change. And uh, I was talking to Bell Hooks, who's a friend of mine. She was one of my first friends when I moved back to New York as an adult. And Bell is the person who, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist teaching know that they're ex- like excruciatingly precise with words and terminology, like excruciating. And Belle is more so, um, you know, which I've told her. I said, I've never met anyone like you. Like, <laughs> uh, so she told me she doesn't like the term social change um, because she associates that with picketing and marching. And uh, she'd rather think, talk about radical thought or radical action something that is, is really different um, from our ordinary conventional, maybe boxed in or more imprisoned ways of, of being. So uh, all along I've been saying in terms of, of this book, what about art? You know, what about creativity? What about music? What about theater? Um, you know, can we see these things as actions that make an enormous difference in just the way we're talking about? So we dare to imagine something different. We can see love as a strength. We can be coming from a, a very different place in our view of what could be in this world. And so um, that's the other thing that brought me here tonight is, is that kind of exploration. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure, like... by all means. So one of the things that also... Uh, fascinates me um, is uh, a very kind of western notion I've been challenged with a lot that great art has to come from enormous suffering and that uh, you know people often say well I don't want to meditate I'll get too mellow and I'll just be satisfied and I won't you know I won't create in the same way and um There are other points of view, of course, that uh, what we're talking about in in that creative process is not so much suffering as courage, you know, the ability to really break out of the norm or something like that. So I just wondered if you ever were challenged by that yourself or?
3: Well, it's, it's interesting because I heard you say several words that triggered thoughts for me. One was love and community and social change and i think about the seeds of my own practice as an artist and activist and it's really tied up with those um three n- notions which come from um i guess m- my mother who is you know, who is the root for for me who was someone who i loved deeply and who loved community and who was a social activist and believed that in order for us to be in community that we had to figure out a way in which we could nurture that community. So I, 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 you know, I have to disagree with Bell Hooks, who <laughs> I respect a, a, a great deal, but I do think that social change is in, important. And I think that um, the form of activism that I'm drawn to in writing is the, the, the kind of writing and activism that incites change. And invite and in, invites people to think, and invites small revolutions. You know, whether those revolutions are tiny shifts in perspective, or whether those revolutions are um, ones in which force people to go outside. So,
4: that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I. Uh, one of the things I love about theater, in particular as a form, is that. Um, I found there was a kind of timeless quality to it. Like, years ago, I went to, um, I just looked it up in the back, Hugh Jackman's one-person show, The Boy from Oz. And that same afternoon, I went to visit a friend who uh, edited film Mm -hmm. as a living, and so she was in her studio. And we watched her, you know, in the kind of high-tech process of, like, I need a sound, you know, like, let me try this out and just plucking it out of somewhere some you know archive and putting it in a scene and and the contrast between like one person on a stage just there in direct contact and and uh that's sort of highly technical evolved world of editing um i thought look at that you know like that Person on the stage—it's just timeless.
3: Well, I think one of the beauties about theater is that it's dy- dynamic and it shifts um, at every single moment. So, um, as as a playwright, I can see my play a hundred times and it's never the same play because it's completed by the audience and by the energy that's in that room, which is what I think makes it really different from film and television—is that it really. Um, depends on all of the the energy that's exchanged in in that moment. And I I just have to tell a story because I just recently um, was on the road with um, My Place Sweat, which is about a group of steel workers that have been forced out of their um, factory after working there for about 25 years, and after performing the show in New York, then on Broadway to audiences that sat back from a distance and, and either enjoyed the play or were frustrated, um, um, by it. We decided that we wanted to take the play on the road to the Rust Belt and into communities that don't normally experience theater on a regular basis. And, um, so we're sort of making this journey from Pennsylvania all the way to Minneapolis. But what, what I wanted to say about that is that we decided that we weren't going to have any special effects that the play was literally done in in rooms this size or gymnasiums or libraries, there's no fourth wall. And um, the actors, um, after they did it for the first time, they said, we've never had this experience because it feels like the way theater is supposed to be done because we could feel the audience at every single moment. We can look into their eyes and we can shift our performances based on how they were responding. And it made me feel, after I went to see the performances, like, this is the kind of theater I want to make. That in, in New York, I realized that um, I have been shaping my vision to the proscenium and to the expectations of the space and not really thinking about the kind of theater that I want to make that um, is in dialogue with the community and the culture.
4: That's fantastic. And it's a return to. It's a, Yeah, it's yeah. a return. Um, I love that sense because it's so different, uh, just listening to it, it's so different than being a writer because you don't have that sense of, I mean, sometimes someone will come up and say, I read your book, you know, and it meant a lot. And and then there's that moment, but it's like 18 years later, you know, like <laughs> something like that. And it, there's not that sense of constant <laughs> recreation, you know, like faith came out, you know, um, 16 years ago.
3: Well, at least as a a writer, as a playwright, sometimes you'll sit next to someone in the theater and they don't know you're a writer. And this is a true story. I sat next to someone and at intermission she said, what do you think about this play? I said, it's okay. She's like, I don't like it. Oh, (laughs) I thought, okay. (laughs) 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 Okay. But that's all part of the process. I mean, that's kind of the beauty, is that you're right immersed in there and you get immediate feedback. (laughs) It's
2: true.
4: (laughs) It's fabulous. Well, once I heard um, the Dalai Lama on a panel at um, Emory University, and uh, he was at Emory for many days, and that particular afternoon was sponsored by the art department, so there was a lot of energy, you know, around those kinds of questions, and he was... On the stage with Richard Gere and Alice Walker, and someone asked him the very question I started out with about suffering and, mm-hmm. you know, um, does art have to great art have to come from great suffering? And uh, Alice Walker started responding, and she said, I, I forget who her mentor was as a poet, but she said he really believed that. But as she grew and matured and became happier and happier, she felt her art was better. And, you know, Richard said something. And then the Dalai Lama, he'd been sitting there, one of those confused looks on his face. (laughs) And he said something I found so amazing. He said, are people always dragging me around, showing me things like paintings or, you know, architecture or something? And he said, in Tibet, we believe that a, a work of art was considered great depending on what happened in the mind of the creator in the process. And that, if they became more free and and more um connected and and more aware, then that was considered
3: i mean it's interesting because this question of whether great art comes from suffering, I really am a firm believer that great art comes from um from the truth, you know, and I think the difference between a piece of art that's impeccably crafted because you have r- writers or artists who are technicians and you look at the work and it's beautiful but somehow it doesn't move you and then you can look at another piece of work in which you know the the lines are a little sloppy but there's some truth that's reflected back and I feel like that is the great art is the is the artist that can can sort of push aside everything and and reach for their own truth
4: Don, uh, we were talking briefly about this book I wrote called faith which came out 16 years yeah. ago And uh, it was really a hard one for me to write. It was really my faith journey. It was a tough journey. And there were many times when um, I sought help or just some perspective Mm -hmm. from somebody. And at one point, um, Susan Griffin said to me, "Uh, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the person writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. Mm -hmm. And that helped enormously because I had such a, thing, you know, especially the, I find the kind of topics that I write about, I can be awfully highfalutin, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, I get elevated, and I'm just up there, and And one piece of advice somebody gave me was just tell the truth, Yeah, just tell the truth, that's it.
3: I also do find as a writer, the hardest thing to write about is oneself.
4: Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also learned from that, you know, like... uh in the process, I had some tremendous shifts in, in, in my understanding or the way I was holding those those stories, so it was really... And I find that, you know, when you attempt to tell the truth, that's when it's impactful.
3: Yeah, and, and sometimes, it, as you said, it can be incredibly painful, and I think about my breakthrough as a writer as a moment in which I had to go inside of myself in ways that I was not prepared to do and sort of confront my own my own sadness, and my own sense of loss, and then sort of put that down in some way on the page, and I chose to do it through metaphor, but it, it was a very hard and difficult process, and in many ways, I think it was my breakthrough because people recognized it. You know, I kind of describe it as that moment in, like, Water for Chocolate, where... She's, she's mixing the, the batter, and as she's mixing the batter, all of the tears are falling into it. And when people eat it, they can't help but to cry because they recognize something that's truthful in, in those flavors. That's beautiful.
4: And I, I tell this story, yeah. um, which you just reminded me of in Faith, about because uh, it was very hard to write, <laughs> and uh, uh, going to visit Ramdas, who was an old friend of mine, and uh, he'd had um, not too long before this very severe stroke, and he wasn't expected to live, and then he lived, and and he was um, very uh, limited sort of in his speech, it would depend on his level of fatigue and stuff, but usually uh, there were big pauses and big gaps before he could just say what was on his mind. And, and uh, somewhere in the conversation we were having, um, he asked me about, writing and i said i was working on this book and that it was really hard and and i said um i've never had to go so deep inside myself before to find the words and bring them out and then he said that's how i am every day now
3: oh wow and i thought oh
4: okay that's right this is the process you know this is what has to happen in doing that
3: that's it it's incredible
4: yeah and it makes such a difference you know for um you know the i remember also being in the soviet union and uh when it was still soviet union and watching people go to cemeteries and put flowers on poets graves and things like that because that was the thread that was what was was actually um the revolutionary act in their minds and they remembered you know that that people said these things and people suffered for having said those yeah. things, and, and that, was, that was the sacred space. You know, if you got married, you'd do something like that for this part for of the, the ceremony, you, you know. Um, That's beautiful. That's quite incredible. So did you always want to be a playwright?
3: Um, I think on some level I always wanted to be a playwright, uh, but I didn't embrace the notion until... Probably I was in my mid twenties when I finally said the words, "I am a playwright," because I think that playwriting certainly, when I was coming up, was not um, something that I ever thought of as a career. Particularly as a woman, I didn't have a lot of um, I didn't have a lot of um, people to to look to. I think when I was in school, um, I'd only read by the time I graduated from college two plays written by um, Black women. I would probably had read four plays written by women and so I was led to believe that it wasn't only a hobby for women and not an avocation. And so it took me a long time to finally be able to hold those words in my mouth and say it was a playwright, you know, and, and, and now it doesn't seem like an act of bravery, but back then it certainly was an act of bravery because it meant um, that I was entering into this very unknown space because I didn't know that I was ever going to be able to make a living. I don't didn't know whether there was ever going to be an audience for my words because there wasn't an audience in the past. That's amazing. Well, when
4: I was a child, if somebody said, What do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say a playwright. I'm not even sure I knew what that was.
3: Well, then what I would say is just say you're a playwright and you are a playwright. Oh, okay. I'm a playwright. (laughs) You are a playwright. Wow. Stop circling around it and just embrace it. I'm a playwright. You're a playwright. playwright. You heard it. She's a playwright. (laughs) This was the moment
4: I became a playwright. (laughs) playwright. (laughs) it's you yeah. see it's a really collaborative process
3: it, it, is, it is a collaborative process
4: <laughs> which is also I was just I was just struck by the pain of that like you create this thing and then you turn it over and
3: you know but but surrendering the play i think is part of the joy of of <laughs> writing is that when i write the play i in my head it's complete i know exactly what it is and mm-hmm. how it's meant to be. And I think the beauty of playwriting is that I can invite all of these collaborators into my space and see how they play with the tools that mm-hmm. I have laid, laid down. And sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised and it's amazing. And there are other times when I'm absolutely <laughs> horrified. But that's just part of the exercise of being a, a playwright and, and in surrendering control. And it's also part of being in a, in a strictly collaborative medium is that you can't have control of every aspect of it. You know and I think that's where it probably differs It's yeah, yeah. like when you put down that punctuation unless you have a really pushy editor you know that that's your punctuation
4: yeah yeah it's it's different, I mean there's obviously you know like certain amount of um collaboration and you know title cover all those things, but it's not that much you know yeah. like uh no it's it's very true um how funny well, I also um you know, I was thinking about love and how the experience of sitting in a theater and connecting to something that isn't precisely your story but is also your story um, is a is a transformation based on love. And it's very different than um, just opposing something. Yeah. You know, it's really creating a possibility. Well, you know, I,
3: I, I think of the... Um one of the ultimate goals of of the theater is to is to build empathy. And it's a space in which you can invite people into another space for two hours or or for for one hour and put on their skin and and walk. Uh, you know, and walk through their living rooms and bedroom rooms and through their experiences, and and um, move them closer. You know, certainly with my most recent play, S- Sweat. I mean, one of my my mantras when I was writing the play is to replace judgment with curiosity. And so, how do I enter the skin of characters who, you know, on a regular basis, if I encountered them on the street, I would probably not say hello. And, or I would find who they are repulsive, but I thought I have to understand what is my resistance to these people. And so my exercise as a playwright is to go inside and find out why do they hurt and how can I explore that hurt and how does the way in which they hurt impact my life? And so sweat became this exercise of, of entering into, 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 into the different ways we hurt, you know, whether we're black, we're white, or we're Latino.
4: Yeah, which is an amazing exercise. I mean, that's that's the vision yeah. of another world, yeah. and um, and to think about that's why art is so disruptive and so important because it's suddenly you know I'm in the depression with rosemary and, and I'm listening to Bob Dylan's music, and I I, I said to Jerry who is sitting next to me, I said. I never realized his music was so grim, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, God, his music is like really
3: yeah.
4: depressing, you know, like,
3: ugh,
4: but what a powerful story, you know, look what people yeah, live through. Well, and, yeah, I look
3: know. forward to, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah.
4: No, it's, it's, it. it's a whole world of change <laughs> and possibility, and um, so I was really insistent when I was thinking about this book that Uh, that there'd be, you know, some significant amount about art and connection. And just recently I was at a friend's house in California, and um, we watched that Netflix show Nanette. Um, Huh? No, Nanette. It's Nanette, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. which is a one-woman show about her life in Australia and being... A lesbian and being beaten up, and you know, and um, and throughout she has this thread about uh, Van Gogh, which she pronounces correctly, which I don't. Van Gogh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and uh, and she actually she brings up this idea of suffering, you know, and that just uh, does great art have to come from great suffering? And just about the last thing she says in the in the monologue is this is like an hour later, and it's so. Intensely emotional and riveting and painful to watch and and uh, and I imagine to act many times over and over and over again. But she said, um, "You know, we don't have sunflowers. You know, one of his great works because he suffered. We have sunflowers because he had a brother whom he loved yeah, and who loved right. him. Yeah. You know, it's because of connection." I was just like, "Oh my God!" You know, like, look at yeah, that. Look.
3: Well, i think I think it's true, I mean sort of circling back to to love and the sort of the seeds of creation, and I think of where i i i reach um when I'm writing is that I can't dwell too much in the darkness because I feel like the darkness for me is not a creative space mm-hmm. that i have to I have to find those light light patches even in places like if even if I'm in Congo in the middle of the war or if in the rust rust belt or if I'm uh, an elephant that's about to be poached um, like Malima's tale it begins with the things he loves before he's poached because I think that's my way into the play is what does this elephant lose rather than um, focusing on the elephant's death.
4: No, I think that's that's exactly right. It, it reminds me of um, uh, this time I went to teach at Walter Reed Army Hospital. Mm. It was like National or International Nurses Week, so they were bringing all these programs. So I was obviously the meditation teacher, and I had a friend who was a nurse there, and so she arranged this tour, short tour of one of the wards before I had the class, and so it was so intense, you know, and painful and difficult between the soldiers and their families and what everyone was going through. And and, uh, as we were leaving, she turned around and she said to me, the nurses who can stay here, which of course means continue to serve, the nurses who can stay here are not the ones who get lost in sorrow. The nurses who can stay here are the ones who can connect to the resilience of the human spirit. You know, it's
3: interesting you say that because I... um did writing workshops for the Wounded Warriors, and one of the workshops I did was um, with nurses who worked in, in trauma medicine for soldiers. This was in Germany who literally had been airlifted from Afghanistan and arrived and they were the first women to see these young soldiers and the majority of them when they came in didn't survive. And when we're going through the exercises my assumption is that they were going to write about these traumatic experiences and by and large what they wanted to write was fantasy fiction. You know they wanted to write about vampires and unicorns and even in the midst of all the darkness and the trauma, what they reached for was the beauty. Yeah. And so I think yeah. it's, it's true that these are the women who have the resilience to stay is because they're able to sort of look beyond and find something beautiful. Yeah. And
4: I think we kind of have to. And I also, you know, many people feel tremendously guilty about that. Like, you know, it shouldn't, it's it's selfish or something. But um, I think it's just real, you know. And, and it's, an, it's another way art... Um, allows us to keep going and seek to make change.
3: Yeah, I I worked for for years for Amnesty International, and my job was as press officer, and I... um, on a regular basis, I had to sort of delve out bad news to the world about the sort of horrific things that were ha- happening. And it begins to wear on your body after a while. A- at night, I'd go home and my back, you know, I was only in my 20s, but my, my back was clenched as if I were 50 years o- old. And um, what I realized that for me, my art, my writing became a refuge is that it's the place where I could go, close the door, and process my experience. And it, in, in some ways, it really saved me. And I remember there's one m- moment, and this was a transformative moment for me as, as an artist and also as an, as an activist, is that a woman um, who was a photographer named Do- Donna Ferrader brought in these images of, of women just as they were entering a battered women's shelter. So... Literally, these were the the mass of women who had suffered, but then had made the decision to leave um, to, to, to leave their circumstances. So, you know, they were at once vi- victim and, 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 and hero. And I thought, how how do I process this in a human rights organization that really doesn't address women's rights? And so I closed my door and I wrote a play and And I wrote it really, really quickly, and it was a play called called "Poof." and um Poof" was about a a, a woman who's been abused for years. Um, her husband um, comes after her, and she tells him to go to hell, and he spontaneously combusts. And then she's surprised. she calls her best friend <laughs> and her best friend comes down, and he's literally just a pile of ashes on the floor, and they discuss, what do we do with him? And they decide that they're going to sweep him under the rug. <laughs> and, so, and it was a funny play about a really horrific thing, but I realized that's the way I had to cope, and that's what art can do, is sort of process these traumas And reflect them back in a way that we can receive them, so Mm -hmm. that we don't—we're not Mm -hmm. re-traumatized.
4: Which I think also calls for um, uh, the spaciousness of the creator, because if you are kind of lost in the trauma, you probably are—you
3: can't get. Yeah, it's impossible to get. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true.
4: Okay, so do you want to speak to us? Do you want to talk to us for a while, and then we can go back to just hanging yeah. out? Um, I think uh, someone must have a microphone that we need you to use. Are you going to walk around with
3: this? I thought you had a question. What's, What's the question? Okay.
5: Hi, thanks. Uh, super interesting discussion. Uh, as an activist, really working in social justice without pretty much any creative talent, I want to know um, from you, Lynn, since you really bridged those worlds, uh, but, I, but I think of you really as an artist, it, when you look at the art you've created that has so much social justice energy in it, and then you look at the movement that we represent, Do you feel like we're interacting in the right way? Do you feel like the movement uses art in the way that it should? (coughs) Or do you have any other comments about how we could do that better? Is
4: that
3: a question for me?
4: Why don't you start?
3: I'll see Uh, Sure, I mean, I I think that's a really interesting question because I feel like sometimes the art, um, the needs of the artists are at, at odds with the needs of the social activists is that in social activism, a lot of times they want the art to um, um, have answers or to come up with solutions or to define what the action is. And I think that the art a lot of times is just designed to ask the questions and not necessarily come up with the with the solutions because I think that that's where the politicians and the activists come in and I think that that's where the tension is sometimes between the art and act- activism. But I do think that there needs to be a, 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 a bigger conversation and, and, and this is actually, and I, I don't want to circle back, but I think in some ways that the critics in America have created that wedge between art and activism by by making the notion of political art a bad word And and as a result, I think there's a whole generation of young people who might want to use their art for social justice um, reasons, who are pushed away from that, because they know if they do so, they won't be rewarded.
4: I think there's also something very interesting about um, how any one person, Reconnects to the resilience of the human spirit and connects to something bigger and you know and and has that opportunity uh, not just to to be fighting but to have some joy you know and a sense of connection and um, because obviously it's not easy, you know, and I used to look back at people in the civil rights movement and think, Wow, you know isn't it amazing like they were so brave they went out. And did these incredibly courageous things, and registered people to vote, and got beaten up. But they knew it's what they had to do to win. And then I realized one day they didn't know they were going to win. Like you know, that's that's kind of the the arrogance of history. You know, it's like you look back and think, of course, you know, that's what they had to do because they knew that's what they had to do to get this done. But they didn't know they were going to get it done because we don't know in the moment. We're always entering that unknown, and we do what we do because it's what has to be done. Or what we feel we need to do, but um, that is quite a task. And so, how do we keep connecting to something that will will energize us and keep us going?
3: You know, I, in, uh, hearing you say that, I think about embedded in a lot of art is a is, is sort of a subliminal social justice mission. In in that, who we choose to see put on stage. and and particularly in center stage and how we frame that people can be a a political act and so I think that um, art doesn't always have to um, be shouting its mission I think that it can very subtly be shifting the way in which we see the world I mean you look at um, um, some of the television programs and some believe the fact that Uh, um, having seen a black president on television, permitted people to imagine a black president in real life. So I think that there are ways, subtle ways, in which art and social justice can merge without it being super um, um, obvious. I should put on my glasses. Thank you. (laughs) Um.
2: I've, I'm very honored to be here with the two of you. You're both really amazing women, and thank you so much. And um, some years ago, I ran a program for uh, trafficked and exploited youth. And um, what really could you hold it up a little? What really helped temper and, and bring about more hope was a, an arts and theater program as well that we had some funding for. And sadly, that's being cut all over for, for kids. There's very little happening with, uh, in the education system. But to get back to you, Lynn, um, I saw your uh, play ruined uh, at around that time and found it just so amazingly moving. And um, I think the fact that you won the Pulitzer Prize you know, it was an act of social change. And I also think the recent winners of the Nobel Peace Prize has something to do with you and, and the plays that you've written. And well, uh, I just want to thank you.
3: Well, thank you. I, I had the, the privilege of getting to know um, Dr. McWaigge um, in part through my friend Jessica Newworth, who's here. And Dr. Mekwege, as you know, won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work that he did with women in, in Congo. Um, and he is, in, he is a remarkable man. And you talk about a true and pure healer is that he was able, you know, despite insurmountable odds, to heal, and Jessica, you can probably correct me, um, maybe 10,000 women, more, more 10,000 women who have been victims of of, of rape, rape and and um, sex, um, gender-specific um, um, human rights abuses. Um, but thinking of of ruined, um, which was a long journey for me to write because I wanted to be very thorough in terms of my research. But one of the very specific things that I wanted to do is use art as a, a, a tool for healing, and in part. Um, interviewing women um, from the, the Congo and hearing their stories and looking at their resilience and looking at the way they were able to process that pain and come out on the other side really helped me shape the play and then also after I interviewed the women I end up um, doing a program in Rwanda which was specifically looking at the way in which um, art could be used as a a, a tool for healing in traumatized communities. And I think of America as being a traumatized community. Very often, we think of these communities as being far away from us. But right now, I don't know about you, but I feel immensely traumatized on a regular basis and think about the subtle ways in which I can use my art to shift the dial.
6: Hi. Um, Sharon, I've been listening to your podcast every morning at 5 in the morning before my twins wake up.
4: Are you sitting next to Lily, who's really the guru of the podcast?
6: Oh, well, <laughs> thanks for, for the podcast. Um, I guess my question is this. Um, I wake up every morning and listen to these kind of things so that I can feel centered and connected to other people, to work with three-year-old children every day and it's a good way to get balanced. But then when I go about my day and I get involved with my political life and listening to what's happening in the news, particularly lately, I don't, obviously I don't feel centered, but I don't also know that it's appropriate to feel that way. And I guess I've been thinking a lot about Women and rage and anger and how to make sense of that in terms of my Buddhist life and um, how how to to figure it out and I, I guess I would love to hear what you have mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. about uh, appropriate rage and and how to, mm-hmm. to to mesh that with whatever belief
4: system mm-hmm. you have. Um, you know, I think. Uh, even within the Buddhist framework, you know, keeping it there for a moment, we feel what we feel, you know, and there's nothing healthy or onward leading about putting ourselves down for what we feel. You know, I shouldn't feel this. I should, I should be that, you know, instead, or, um, that makes no sense. The question is a uh, one question is, does that feeling lead to action and is it actually the action we want to take? Um, Or is there a way of kind of holding the feeling, not holding it down, but holding it, so that it guides us in a way that we can almost like capture the energy of it. Um, So one of the characteristics, again, so within the Buddhist framework of anger, and I don't mean feeling it, I mean being lost in it, submerged, overcome by it, or defined by it, is that it tends to give us a kind of tunnel vision. If you think right now, if you just bring back last time you were really angry at yourself you know like just bring it up right now it's not a time where our mind says you know i did five great things same morning (laughs) you know it's just like i am a horrible person because this is what happened and everything closes down so um does action taken from that kind of (laughs) vise uh is that actually the best action so they would say no but that doesn't mean you want to condemn yourself in any way for what you're feeling. You want to see if you can capture that energy without the closedness, you know, without the um, kind of tunnel vision of it. And that's quite a task, you know. But but I think it's really possible. And I've seen it uh, a lot coming from my activist friends, you know. Um, I tell this story in my uh, last book. I actually, by the way, wanted to write this forthcoming book, assuming I ever finish it, forthcoming book last time, and I proposed it to the publisher. And he said, no. He wanted this different book, which became my book, Real Love. And and so this time he called me, like three years later, and he pitched the exact same book he had turned down three <laughs> years ago. I said, Bob, isn't that the same book? Like, And he said, it's a different world now, (laughs) so here we are. Anyway, so um, I tell the story about a friend of mine named Malika Dutt, who started an organization called Breakthrough, working against violence against women, and we met because we were just on a panel together, we'd never met before, and uh, she told the story of her becoming an activist. She was an attorney and um, lived part of the time in India, part of the time here, and Uh, She was in India, and a friend of hers was in some kind of accident and was hospitalized. And the scene there is such that really the friends and family need to come into the hospital and and, um, take care of the person. And so uh, because it was the only bed available, her friend was put on the burn unit. And so Malika, being in the hospital and taking care of her, saw a lot of women who were in the hospital because their husbands had burned them or their mothers-in-law had burned them, and, you know, and she was so outraged and so sickened by the whole thing that she turned her whole life around and she became this incredible activist. So we're sitting next to each other in the panel, and then she says, but I don't know how to turn it off. She said, I don't know how to dial it down. And she basically said, it's killing me. And not only that, she said, everyone in my organization is like that, and we're just on each other. You know, and so in the years since I've known her, uh, you know, she's studied shamanism and she's done this and she's done that. She's a Zen teacher and, you know, like uh, she's found from within, you know, not complacency or uh, laziness or apathy, but she's found a way to sort of um, not be uh, defined by only one feeling because it was it was not working. You know, so this has nothing to do with good and bad, or, or you shouldn't feel what you're feeling. Uh, and in some ways, the energy of that is, is a huge wake-up for many, many people. Um, like, life is not easy. Life, life can be really terrible. People can be cruel. Systems can be cruel. It's, you know, you can't just turn the other way. You can't just look the other way. But how do we most effectively keep going, because it's very hard to seek change in, in those ways. And so um, it's a very big question around that. I just, you know, I always come back to don't condemn yourself for what you're feeling. See what in there <coughs> might, be, might be useful for you, might be onward leading for you. But also pay attention, because the things we're taught so often are simply untrue. You know, like, compassion is weakness. Or generosity is for suckers. Or, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Or, you know, whatever. Don't, don't take care of anyone else, because they're not going to take care of you. And, you know, there's so many things. That vengefulness is strength. If you spend the rest of your life consumed 24 hours a day with ideas of revenge, that's a good thing. You know, but is it really? Is that our own experience? And uh, as one friend of mine said... Um, he's somebody who would describe himself as uh, kind of obsessed. I don't want you to think I talk about my friends this way, you know, they, they talk about themselves this way. Uh, he would describe himself and has as kind of an obsessive type, and I agree. And uh, he got into an obsession about somebody, you know, and, and what they did and how they behaved, and just went on and on and on and on. And on. And, Finally, at the end, he said, and I think this is like an AA saying, he said, um, I let that person live rent-free in my brain for too long. <laughs> you know, I gave too much of my life energy, too much of my life force over to that kind of rumination, you know. and So we pay attention. That's what the practice actually really does, is it gives us the gift of awareness so that we can see for ourselves, well, maybe that's not the path I want to. Maybe that's not so strong, you know, maybe that's not so weak after all, like that.
0: Hi. Um, it seems to me that um, self consciousness is one of the big enemies of creativity, for me at least. I, I wonder for Lynn and also for Sharon if you'd like to answer. Um, when you have periods where you feel very self conscious, um, how do you deal with those periods and how do you get out of them and free yourself up again?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's a phrase that I often use is that as writers, we move between grandiosity and despair and, you know, and battling self-consciousness is, is it's an ongoing fight, but sometimes I think, um, you know, it's what Sharon, Sharon says, is that you have to lean into the feeling and understand why you're feeling self-conscious and what it is, um, what is the real obstacle, and I and it's and it's a letting go process and believing in your own voice and trusting um trusting that the truth is going to come and that's the only answer that, that I have is that it's 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 been a discipline learning to push that voice um that questioning voice out of my head. Hi. Um Sharon, something you said triggered this, but
7: either of you are welcome to answer it and uh How do you forgive and love and see the resiliency in someone, help them see it in themselves, and still hold them accountable, and even to the extent of seeking justice?
4: Um, You do, you know. I mean... uh, I, I tend not to use the word forgiveness because it's so loaded, you know. Um, but, of course, it's, I, I, I you know, can sense what you mean. I, I have a friend, um, colleague, Sylvia Borstein, who has a great phrase. She said, um, forgiveness is not amnesia. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean, like, we're wiping the slate clean and what happened didn't matter or does not still matter. But it's something about that holding and that part of yourself that's just captured by by some circumstance you cannot control. Um, And I I don't see them as as different. They, They coexist, but I think that's an experience. It's very hard to describe in words that you can have tremendous compassion for someone. And your discernment, your intelligence, the best wisdom you can bring forth says that this is a situation that calls for incredibly strong boundaries. This is a situation that calls for, um, you know, uh, I don't think about punishment so much, but um, people being safe, you know, and so it might call for somebody being restrained because it's not safe if they're not if they're not restrained. It certainly might call for someone being out of power, you know, because <laughs> there's no need to exceed, you know, to say, oh well, you know. It's all love, so, you know, I won't vote. I have a big obsession about voting. Um, You know, it's whatever, you know, because it matters. And uh, One of the things, you know, because I teach so much loving kindness meditation as a method, that comes up, that kind of question comes up all the time. And um, I think it's really an embodied understanding. You feel how, first of all, you can have compassion for yourself and someone else. You feel that place where you have compassion for someone, maybe you care about them a lot, and you realize, I can't fix this. This is not in my hands to turn your life around. And you also feel what it's like to have compassion for someone and realize, I'm going to fight. You know, that this is just, uh, a lot of harm is being created, and I, I need to, to take a stand. And I, I, they're not in opposition to one another, but we're also taught forever that they're in opposition to one another. You know, so that's why I think it's some kind of experience that, that frees us from that.
5: Hi, thanks so much uh, for both of you being here tonight and really loving hearing both of these perspectives. I also work on a lot of women's health issues, so many of these are resonating with me. Um, one of the things that I think I I haven't heard, but that I think comes from art that may, may be why it's related to suffering is that the artists often can see the world in a different way in my mind than others are seeing it and help reframe a problem, rethink how to talk about it or a solution. Um, Because as a a worker or an activist, maybe you get caught in one sort of mindset and and reading or seeing something can change that. And I find that mindfulness can do that as well because it kind of forces you to rethink sort of tried and true thoughts in my mind. And to me, the, they, they have like uh simpatico between them because of that. And, and I wonder if, if maybe that's why sometimes it's translated into suffering, because when you see the world differently, it can be hard to find community, it can be hard to engage with others. And I wondered about your thoughts on that.
3: You know, it's, it's interesting because I'm thinking about suffering and when you, you asked that initial question, um perhaps i didn't fully understand because i thought are you talking about my own suffering or are you talking about witnessing of suffering and i th- i think it's two different things because i feel in some ways my art doesn't come from my own suffering but the witnessing of suffering mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and i think you are Right. I think that the role of the artist is is to be very aware and is to be alert and to respond and to reflect and and to do all of those things, which I think that a lot of people um, aren't necessarily prepared to do or not necessarily interested in, in doing And So I do think that there is a relationship between mindfulness and the making of art.
4: Well, I would say also, you know, back to self-consciousness for a moment, the um the times uh, when I've had a really hard time writing, which are, like, they happen, <laughs> and, uh, uh, the times when things become clearest for me, like especially, um, I would say one of my great weaknesses as a writer is structure, which is about relationship. How does this relate to that? And... Uh, probably the single most common editorial comment I've gotten is, how'd you get from here to there? I said, I went. I don't know. <laughs> just, I went. In fact, the first time, this was a friend, but he was, he was first time anyone looked at something I'd written with an editorial view it was for Loving Kindness, which was my first book, and it was my first attempt to write it. Um, he was so sweet, he said to me, your writing really reminds me of James Joyce. And I got so excited, I thought, he thinks I'm a genius. <laughs> and then I thought, he's saying he doesn't know what I'm saying. <laughs> he can't figure out what I'm talking about, which was actually the case. Um, but the time that it just emerges from me, not because I'm trying to figure out how do I get from here to there, but the connection, the relationship between different elements just arises was twice most repeatedly. One was I first woke up in the morning because the sensor had not woken up yet. And the other was when I was meditating. Because Not because I was trying to figure it out in the meditation, but a, a space just got created in which something could arise. And so uh, they're very similar in a lot of ways. And that, you know, both of them, um, sometimes people think of mindfulness as very self-conscious, but it's really not. You know, it's something very different than that. It's more about space.
3: You know, it's interesting that you talk about structure because I have this theory that the structure that people lean on is the structure of the home that they grew up in and so There you, you know, go. <laughs> and you know, having yeah. re- read your book, I can see why that yeah. would yeah. that would be a struggle.
4: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Wow. To think about that. <laughs> <laughs>
8: um Hi, I'll stand up. I was—I've been working a lot in my own practice on um, wise speech. Could you hold this closer? Oh, sure. I've been working a lot in my own practice on wise speech this year, Um, and you know, listening to the two of you as writers, you know, and those questions that you ask with wise speech—is it true? Is it? um, I don't know what. uh, Is it useful? Is it useful? Is it kind? Um And it's like a process of discernment as you're speaking and making the choices of the words to use. And so I'm curious you, Sharon, as a teacher, but also as a, write, you know, as a Buddhist teacher and as a writer, and um, Lynn, you also as a writer, like, how do you think about that and the influence that that might have on your writing? And speaking,
3: and the question is about speech. It's about wise speech,
8: which is this Buddhist concept. Oh,
4: yeah. Is, are you saying like, do you have certain principles that you're referring to as, as one writes? Like, is this useful? Is this? Yeah. That I mean, mean,
8: are you? Con- I guess you're consciously. I'm not an artist, but you're consciously like choosing the words and the way that you want to communicate.
3: You know, in, I'm of two minds, and going back to sort of the censorship um, question, I find that if I'm overly self-conscious about the way in which I'm approaching my writing, um, it becomes difficult for me to write. And so I think that I allow myself to be a little more freeform and less intentional when I'm writing, and it's the edit in which I go back and um, sort of really deliberately think about why did I choose these words? Why did I arrange these ideas in this particular pattern? But when I first set out to write, I just allow the words to come.
4: And I just go into a trance, which now that you mention it's just <laughs> like my childhood. <laughs> it is, it's exactly <laughs> like my childhood. That's what I do, I just I, I don't have that kind of thinking, you know, like. No, I think this is a whole other theory. This is fascinating. I
9: think Jerry Jerry has sent it. Hi. I've always felt when people ask me, uh, I always say that you're a Buddhist and you're not aware of it. And uh, of late, I was just wondering what your real relationship is to Buddhism because you may have become aware of it. So that's my question.
3: Yeah, I I wouldn't identify myself as a Buddhist, but I was writing a story about the life of Buddha, and I spent many years talking with Robert Thurman, you know, for hours and hours, and I think by osmosis, I became a Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love that. That's fabulous.
9: (laughs) I think of the end of ruins. I think of the end of intimate apparel. I think of the end of Malinois' tale. I think of the end of...
4: Could yes. you
9: hold it this way? I'm sorry. I think of the end of, say, Intimate Apparel. I think of the end of, uh, of Sweat. I think of the end of uh, Melima's Tale. I think of the end of Ruin. There's always forgiveness. There's always love. Your, your plays end with forgiveness and love. And I wondered if, you know, that, that you are a Buddhist and just don't realize it.
3: So, <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. <okay. laughs> I'm going to tell Bob. <laughs> you <Yeah>, tell him. <laughs> okay,
0: hi. Um, I um, am a filmmaker, and I represent a, a queer surrealist photographer who is a protege of Salvador Dali. And the work um, is very challenging on a certain level, but from his truth, uh, it was what he loved. And I think that sometimes just by expressing what we love, it can be challenging uh, to an audience at, at large. So there's that idea of confronting things that we are dealing with on a soul level, things that we're pushing up against in ourselves and allowing our art to reflect that. And, and it's not always easy to look at. Um, but, but what, what inspires uh, your creation? Um, are, are you going in and looking at, at what you're working on on a soul level personally? Um and uh this idea of uh I love the story that you told about, you know, the the man turning to dust and sweeping it under the rug. That's a really beautiful way. But sometimes um I think art needs to be um a little combative. Um and, and and sometimes it's not always easy to look at, but it's good for us to look at because it broadens our net of compassion um so I don't know if there's really a question in there but
3: well you know my response to you is you know the way in which we frame our truth becomes the art that we make and some people you know the way they frame their truth it can be done in a much more aggressive way and and for other people it's done in a very gentle compassionate way and so I don't think that there's one way to make art I think there's many ways to frame the truth
0: sure um sometimes when we Confront something from a place of love. You know what we see as beauty and love can be quite combative to another. So yes. it's it's a, it's an interesting yeah. thing that I've been dealing with.
2: Hi. Um, there was two different uh, events in the amongst the questions where people declared themselves not artists and not creative, and um, as capital A. Artists and capital C creatives. Do you, how do you define art and creativity and how is that sort of, do you see that more broadly than those of us who don't define ourselves that way see it?
3: Yeah, how do, you know, I've never actually been asked how I defi- define art and I guess how I go back to sort of putting the words playwright in my mouth and saying that I'm a playwright and deciding that I wanted to be remunerated for the thing that I love doing um, helped me become an artist. And, and I think that's how I define it is someone who principally um, leads with um, the art that they make.
4: Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> and I think we also, you know, I remember the first time um, a friend of mine had gone to Bali, which I, I've never gone to, but. Uh, you know, I went to India and Burma and Nepal and these other countries, but this friend of mine went to Bali, and she came back and she said the thing that really struck her, at least from her view, was that there was no such thing as an artist. Everybody was an artist. You know, it was just part of the fabric of society, that if you were sitting around um, at night and you were singing or you were playing with a child, or you, were, you know, that that was art. That was considered artistic. It wasn't like a special class. And and I think it's it's very true in a lot of ways. Um, the things that uh, you know, I look at. I mean, I never would consider myself an artist. And people occasionally would invite me to like Buddhism and artist conferences, and I'd say, "Well, I'm not an artist." And they say, "Well, you're a writer." And I say, "Oh, right." <laughs> you know, like. Um, but uh, you know, I I know I will not become a graphic artist, for example, in this lifetime. Um, But there are things that I receive in looking at a painting that remind me that I can uh, be audacious or I can um, be combative or I can, you know, uh, I can do something um, because that's the message, you know, not like, oh, I need to... Uh, go to school and learn a technique so that I can actually present myself to the world as a painter. That's just not going to happen. Um, but there's something in there that helps me live in a different way.
3: You know, I, 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 I do ag- agree with you. And I think that, that, that art is made in, the, in in our community on a day-to-day basis. But I will say this. I do think that there's an act of bravery um, involved in in, one, choosing to be an artist out in the open and choosing to make their living that that way that is a little different. you know. And I do feel a tiny bit tribal about that, <laughs> it, because I think it's really hard and it's really scary.
4: Somebody tell me, uh, I've never been able to source this quote, um, so I've always wanted to use it, like in a magazine article or something. <laughs> I've never been able to, because I can never find the source. but. Uh, So they might have gotten everything wrong about it, but I like the quote. Um, They said, uh, I think it was Auden uh, that they were quoting, who used to write um, theater criticism, theater critiques, and he said, according to this person, who might have gotten it totally wrong, uh, that he would never write a bad review. If he didn't like something, he simply wouldn't review it because the quote was, art has enough enemies...
3: Yeah.
4: So yeah. if anybody knows who said that, I'd really like to know. But
10: it's true. It's, it's true.
11: Hello. Uh, I, I, too, am honored um, to be here with you two uh, wonderful women. Um, I, um, I call myself a closeted poet because I don't share, and I have all of this work that I um, have written in my computer and I save it at each stage. I find that initially when I write, um, it's this raw product and that I'm oftentimes very emotional when I do it because I, I only write when I'm feeling emotion or when something has moved me. But then I go back and as... Lynn, as you said, I, I edit and, and then I go back again and I edit and I go back again and I edit. And I oftentimes find that there's this huge difference between what I started with and the final product. And my question is like, which one is art? Like, like where's the, which one is the art?
3: I mean, I mean, that's a hard question for me to answer because both of them can be art. Um, I think that there, it's the, the raw f- form may be closer to the truth. Um, but, I, you know, I can't answer that question.
1: Thanks. Hi. So this will probably take us in a completely different direction, but um, as I was coming in, I was reading the paper, and you may have seen that Taylor Swift um, put out a call for people to register to vote, and within... Hours, hundreds of thousands of millennials had, had registered. And, and so I wonder if each of you could talk a little bit about this kind of role of self and celebrity in your role as artists, writers, people who, you know, kind of where is that balance between kind of like your art or your writing or your practice speaking and moving people towards activism versus you actually being the one calling people to a particular kind of activism?
4: Well, I mean, I, have, I do have an obsession about voting, so yay, Taylor <laughs> Swift. Um, I, I, I first, I don't consider myself a celebrity, but I also, um, I don't actually tell people who to vote for. I don't wanna tell people what to think or what to believe, but, I, I think, and I, I've written, that in my mind, voting is, is as close to civic engagement as the, the Buddhist view of the innate dignity of all beings. You know, like all beings have, have worth, all beings should have a voice. And um, I think it's abhorrent that that voice is taken away from people. And I think that people have got to vote. You know, they've just got to get out there and vote. And some of the, you know, comments that I get um, after I have posted something or written something include, I think, so much less of you now. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, that's kind of the yeah. the point that I'm trying to get at. You know, I'm not, you know, it's kind of that, that, it's almost the selfing, right, the in or not. I'm not quite sure what it is that, you
4: know. Well, I mean, the selfing would come in if I felt like, that I was so delicate that I had to not write anymore about voting, you know, because somebody thought so much less of me. And But it's usually followed by, I think so much less, I can vote, quote he's verbatim, I think so much less of you now uh, because you're asking people to participate mm-hmm. in an evil system. I think so much <laughs> less of you now because you're asking people to participate in a violent system. Actually, now that they're so similar, I wonder if that was the same person uh, using two different names. <laughs> um, uh, you know but i i think it's so important i mean it, my feeling about voting is actually encapsulated in a conversation i had with a um friend uh whose older teenage son was also in the house and this was before um the 2016 election and i said to the the young man, how old are you? And he said, 17. And I said, when are you turning 18? And it was before the election. So I said, oh, great, you can vote. And there was like complete silence. And then later, the father said to me, we don't vote in this household. So in front of me, it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. I said, what? You know, like, <laughs> you don't vote. You know, I said, you've got to vote. And and uh, I knew his story and his youth and the you know, hardships and things like that. And and basically, you know, a lot of people say, well, the candidates are only different on the margins. So I said to him, a lot of people live in those margins. It may mean nothing to you that minimum wage goes up or not, but it means a lot to a lot of people. <laughs> it's like, you've got to think of those people. So they did vote and I just saw them and, and I said, aren't you glad you voted? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yes, of course, you know, but People construct all kinds of things, and I don't hesitate at all, you know, to say this is what I believe, and um, I do believe it's totally consonant with uh, a Buddhist perspective about the innate worth of everybody, and there you go, you know. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and, and my response, I mean, number one, I wish I had the power that Taylor Swift had because I'd be very dangerous, <laughs> um, but... but um, um, but I do think that we can only be authentically ourselves and sometimes we have opinions which, um, may bother other folks and, um, truthfully, I think it's a really scary time because when you, um, and, and I've had this experience where you put something out on Twitter, on, on, on Facebook or on, on Instagram and suddenly you feel trolled and you feel threatened and you feel like maybe I shouldn't say anything, but I think in times like these it's our responsibility to resist that and to continue to, to be authentic ourselves and say what we feel. And um, you know, Taylor Swift has the power to do, to do that. You know, and I applaud her.
10: Thank you both uh, so much. Um, So I've studied meditation for a long time, and um, I told a teacher of mine that every time someone would say, do you meditate, my response was, I try, I struggle. And um, and this was Ethan, Nick Turn, actually, you know, he said... You you are a practitioner, and there's a deep importance in owning that. And you know, of course, part of the practice is the struggle. And I'm just sort of struck by how many people have um, you know preempted their comments by saying I'm not an artist or I'm not a creative. Um, and particularly the poet over there, um, wow. who was so brave to share that. And I just I found that very moving because I think um, I was reflecting on my own artistry, I was voted most artistic in my high school class, and of course I do nothing related to art in my career at the moment, but my aspiration for this year was to embrace my creativity and find the courage to open myself up to that. And I I think there's something very poignant about that when we think about activism as well, because that's something that sort of lies within each one of us, and we're at this very, you know, this moment of trauma, as you said, Lynn, and this very, very powerful moment where we need to somehow get in touch with that inside ourselves and and find that courage to say, you know, okay, I'm not gonna win a Pulitzer Prize, but I am an artist, or, you know, I'm not, you know, a storied meditation teacher, but I am a practitioner and I am an activist, even if I can't, you know, be out on the street every day. And I, I don't know, that, that, that through line just really struck me, and I just wanted to share it, and I, and I would love to hear your thoughts. It's like, as we walk away from here now, it just feels like, how do we find that courage to sort of push ourselves a little bit more toward who we really know ourselves to be, even before somebody externally recognizes that, you know, or someone gives you that formal space to be that because I think that's, that's what the world is requiring of us right now. Thanks.
3: Well, I think I, I circle back to Sharon saying she wanted to be a playwright and then taking into her mouth those words and saying I am a playwright. And I, I feel like it's really powerful. I felt like um, I didn't make my first dollar as a playwright until I said I wanna be a playwright and i want to be paid as a playwright and then suddenly i got my very first commission and i think that on some level the resistance can be felt by the universe and i know that this feel feels hokey but i think it's really important to reach for the desire and 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 live inside of it in a in a way so that it feels like home
4: and actually i want to circle back to the poet lady <laughs> um, because hearing hearing you speak, you know, after that, I would, uh, I would also really urge you um, to share a poem. You know, like some of the most precious gifts I've ever gotten for my birthday. For example, somebody wrote a poem. Yeah. And um, there's a way in which we, actually, Lynn and I just barely we started talking about this a little bit when we, we met for the first time in that other room tonight. Um, I used to be, like, totally terrified of public speaking. I completely was incapable of doing it. And if any of you have ever done any of our formal retreats, you know that the schedule is usually there's silent retreats, except the teachers always get to talk. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, you're meditating, sitting or walking. You're, there's questions and answers. Um, there's group or individual discussion with the teacher. And then in the evening there's a lecture, you know, there's like an hour-long lecture, and that's like the talk. And uh, the first retreat that um, we taught in this country it was Joseph Goldstein and I. It was 1974. It was a month-long retreat that we've been invited to teach. That meant that there were 30 talks, and I couldn't get a <laughs> single one. I just I could not do it. I was terrified. I was petrified. And people were going up and yelling at Joseph, saying, why don't you let her have a voice? (laughs) Why don't you let her speak? And he said, I'd love to hear her speak. She won't do it. I was petrified. My big fear was that I'd be speaking and my mind would just go blank. And I'd be sitting there. And so I knew that there was this uh, one topic, loving-kindness that had an associated guided meditation. And I thought, you know what? This was months and months and months <laughs> later. I thought, maybe I could talk about that. Because um, if my mind goes completely blank, I can launch into the guided meditation. Maybe <laughs> no one will notice you know, that there was this terrible gap there. So at home in, in Massachusetts, I have piles and piles and piles of tapes, because it was tapes, of myself giving one talk, which was on loving kindness. <laughs> So that went on for a couple of years. I could only give one talk. And then something happened, and I just realized one day, you know what? They're all loving kindness talks because they're all just about connection. No one is looking for me to be perfect. No one is looking for the imparting of my extraordinary expertise. We're just connecting here. And that was the moment that everything changed. And I thought, oh, I can, I can talk about anything, actually. And so I do Um, you know and and so i think there's certain ways in just the act of doing it you see so much and and especially dismantling the kind of perfectionistic uh mandate you know it's got to be this certain way and um and especially with poetry which is its own you know very exquisite and, and difficult sort of form um it's that sharing. It's the generosity, and so I'd also highly recommend loving kindness meditation <laughs> as part of that.
3: But I, I do think you're 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 right. It's sort of leaping into it because we were having this discussion, and I was saying that every year I do something that absolutely terrifies me, and um, for a long time it was public speaking. And what I decided to do is that I was going to do an extemporaneous speech in front of four hundred people, and not. Know what I was going to talk about until I got up to the microphone. I did it. I will never do it again. But my fear for public speaking disappeared because I had confronted. I confronted what I feared. Um, <laughs> you know what? I don't even remember. <laughs> it's
4: funny because I, I told that story to Pema Chodron. Many of you know her work, and and she said I used to be terrified of public speaking too. She said. I was afraid that I was gonna be talking about some topic and my mind would just leap to a different topic and I'd be talking about something else. And she said in all these years, no one's complained. <laughs> no one's come up and said, You know, you started here and then you ended up over there. You know, was just like just talking.
7: I'm curious, um in terms of people sometimes says artists is an instrument for spiritual energy, so how have spiritual practice or spiritual energy is a collaborator in a sense with your creative process and in
3: your, as an artist and as a writer? You know, I, that's interesting because I, I struggle with my spirituality on a regular basis and how I want to practice it and express it. And, um, I, I think for me it's like the act of confronting the blank page is my practice and figuring out how I want to explore the, this this culture and how I want to explore my own personal experiences, the practice that I I lean in, into.
4: And, you know, he's just listening to Lynn. Surrender, right? Yes. I mean, if you just trace the uh, words she's used to describe the process, you can see it all there, you know.
12: So... Thank you so much, it's just such a gift to have both of you here tonight. Thank you. And I'm just, um, I just feel like a, I wanna say something um, because I um, grew up in creating my whole, most of my whole life, you know, pretty much maybe my whole life as soon as I was able to. Um, I've been singing since I was like three and written songs and poems um, since childhood, but over the last years um, in the midst of busyness of work, I, I felt, um, I guess the word paralyzed or kind of like frozen in a way by the incredible busyness and stress of, of my job and, and um, the demands on me. And I just wanted to kind of give voice to that because I have a feeling I'm not the only one like that, you know, in this busy, busy world where there's so much um, people are, tend to be even overly busy. And, you know, when I hear you talk, I'm just so moved and reminded of the value and importance of the creative process and how much I love it. And, and just related to that, recently I was, I was um, in a situation where I went to hear some music and I just felt so um reminded of the beauty of life and the and the um preciousness of, of um good goodness in the world, you know, things that really are are beyond words and and um and and don't um you know kind of elevate us or take us out of our small selves into something bigger. So I'm not sure whether there's really a question in there or more like just a, um, a kind of bringing, giving voice to this, this kind of importance of giving space to art and the creative process in a world that doesn't always um, offer that.
3: You know, and I also think that there's, there's also um, some beauty in taking the pause In order to enjoy the art, you know, I think about um, a lecture that I went to with uh, with Toni Morrison, and someone asked her, What do do you do when you're completely blocked and when you're not writing? And she says, I honor the block and I honor that time and I fill it with other things.
13: Hi, Sharon. And thank you. Um, I just wanted to say it's very important to be around. This is very important for me, to be around art, artists, other artists, to be around art, to be about writing. Um, I had in my mind that I needed to straighten out my house and get rid of a lot of stuff and make things so I could breathe. And it was lovely and I had some company and they loved it. And then I went on a, and I had a pile of books I was giving away because they were in the way and they were kind of a mess. And I went on a writer's retreat and I came back and moved the bookcase out of my living room and in my, into, out of my bedroom into my living room and put the books back. I'm a writer, I'm a book person. And I forgot. And I think it's, I mean, I don't think most people don't do that, but I did that. And it was very important for me to be around people who love books. They wrote books, but they loved books. They loved words, they loved poetry. <coughs> and after spending time with them, I came back and found myself and I, you know, I'm writing. So just make sure that, that you're, and I was on the high line when we did the, the One Mile Opera. Like every time I got a chance to do something, I did that thing. And each time it challenged me and, and and moved me. And this has done that too. And I want to thank you both. Do you want a last question maybe in the
4: back?
7: Thank you for this. Um, it brought up a lot for me. And I was sitting back here thinking, I've done so many different creative things, but I've never had the kind of success that you folks have had. So I was kind of beating myself up. And then I came to, I came to a thought just about, Three minutes ago, that um, I think that we limit ourselves as people in determining what is creative. Um, Because I was thinking, well, I never had that kind of success at creative endeavors. In 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 spite of the fact that I was a tango dancer for ten years, that I do write fiction and memoir, and I did a lot of business writing, and I played music. I have raised two children, I have three grandchildren, one who I am sharing my interest in astronomy with. So now he is fascinated with the moon and Mars and all these wonderful things. But the thing that I did the most successfully, and I was thinking, yeah, but that wasn't creative, this all went through my mind in three seconds, (laughs) was that I built a fundraising office and raised a ton of money for a school. I built it from scratch. And I thought, well, that was a business thing. But no it wasn't because it was a creative endeavor. I built something from the bottom and I started working by myself and I had four people. So I think that when we think about being creative, it doesn't have to be something that we traditionally think of as creative, like writing or art or dance. Like we're separating pieces of ourselves because the most creative thing I did was build that office and um, get four employees to do wonderful work and feel good about themselves, one of whom then later went on somewhere else. So I think that being creative doesn't have to be or look a certain way. It can just be building a great family that goes out in the world and brings love to the world or makes a lot of kids (laughs) who bring love to the world. So... suddenly this light bulb went on over me that it's not limited.
3: That's great, thank you all said.
7: Thank you.
4: Okay, so we have come sadly to the end of our time. So so thank you all so much really for coming and Kathy and Jerry and of course Lynn. Um, How amazing. Uh, really, is it's tremendous. So let's all go out there and write poems and share them. And...
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at
7: com.